This is a Federal News Network podcast. The United States may not be in a war with Russia in the classic military sense, but it does have troops deployed to NATO countries, and that costs money. For review into contract spending to support NATO troops in those countries, we turn to Bloomberg government senior analyst Paul Murphy. Paul, good to have you back. Pleasure to be with you, Tom. So I guess 82nd Airborne and other U.S. units are standing by for whatever purpose in some of the NATO countries, Poland. What does this cost? What are some of the needs they have that reflect themselves in spending? Well, Tom, we noticed from studying contract spending in Afghanistan that the total amount of spending corresponded fairly closely with the number of troops deployed. And as the number of troops went down, spending went way down. So we thought we would do another similar analysis with NATO spending. So we pulled some data down from the Defense Manpower Data Center. We found that active duty troops and reserves and civilian DOD personnel totaled about 82,700 in fiscal 2021. And that was up about 3% over the last seven years since Russia invaded Crimea back in 2014. So there's been a general increment in the number of deployed personnel, including DOD and civilian. Uh, We also noticed over the same period that spending went up. It's up around $5.4 billion in the 28 European NATO countries. And it's up 18.5%. It's chugging along at about $5.1 billion per year. So what that means is... The ratio of dollars to troops is about $63,000 per person, DOD and civilian. Per year? That's that's the average overall for the seven years, $63,000. So if we take the 7,000 troop figure that President Biden proposed to augment the uh, U.S. NATO forces that was announced last week, adds up to roughly $440 million more dollars we might expect in contract support for troops deployed in NATO European countries in the coming months and years. And what costs to have people because their salaries and so forth are already taken care of? And what does the spending go for? Well, the contract spending is obligation, so it's not outlays. It's not military assistance like we're hearing about being sent to uh, Ukraine. It's not spending by civilian agencies, state and USAID have a presence there. This is contract obligations, and it's being spent mainly on four markets. We've got 38% of the money being spent uh, for facilities and construction, not surprisingly, uh, about 23% for transportation and logistics, 10% for IT, and 9% for professional services. That's about four out of every $5 in just those four markets. And to whom does these, these obligations go? Are they local, foreign-based contractors? Largely. I mean, there's a few uh, American companies that stand out. For instance, the biggest American companies working in uh, NATO countries right now include KBR, have a big presence in Poland, and Khaki and Amentum in Germany. And Amentum, of course, is uh, locally based here in uh, Germantown, Maryland. But a lot of the money goes for utilities, electric, and uh, local services that are paid for through foreign companies in these foreign countries. We're speaking with Paul Murphy, senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government. And this is appropriated money. I mean, there's no such thing as an overseas contingency operation budget anymore. So what are the accounts that these come from? I think it's largely uh, operations and maintenance budgets. And I think that, you know, we're going to see a general trend upward, you know, if the uh, troop numbers increase. And now, of course, the president has promised we're not going to be fighting with Russia. We don't have a war with Russia and hope that we don't. When we had wars with countries or actual kinetic activity by our military, then the cost goes up exponentially, doesn't it? 
Uh, it could. It really depends on the nature of the conflict. And if we are in you know, direct hostilities with these foreign countries, I think something to watch for that is playing out now is the amount of money we actually spend on IT and in particular cybersecurity in the coming months, you know, because Russia is known to be uh, hacking and attacking countries with cyber threats throughout Eastern Europe. And the U.S. is dedicated to supporting countries in the cyber threats as well as the uh, security threats. And have we seen that happen yet? the increased in cyber spending, or is it just a potential at this point? I think it's right now potential. As I say, it's been chugging along. The total has been chugging along at about uh, $5.1 billion per year. And, you know, as threats emerge, the spending evolves. But uh, we may see more information technology spending in particular you know, as a result of the nature of the threats. But getting back to that cost of keeping troops outside of where they're normally housed, in this case, in the 28 NATO countries as a result of the Ukraine situation, $63,000 per head over seven years. That doesn't sound like much. There have been efficiency moves in Europe. There's been a base consolidation initiative since 2015. So there have been attempts to try and moderate spending and make it as efficient as possible. But, you know, again, depending on the nature of the support the United States gives, we could see a ramp up in contract spending commensurate with an increase in personnel. And what about civilian personnel that might be moved or somehow placed elsewhere for the duration of something? Does that come up? Is that visible, that kind of spending? Uh, we haven't looked at that explicitly. We, we were looking at DOD civilian personnel. So these would be people attached uh, particularly to bases providing you know, administrative support, operational support you know, at the bases and not involved in direct hostilities. And of the 28 countries, where is most of the spending happening? Most of it, uh, not surprisingly, is occurring in Germany, about uh, $2.6 billion in fiscal 2021, followed by the UK at $720 million, and uh, Italy, where we have a big naval presence, uh, $450 million. And that could change, though, as more people move, say, east. Absolutely. And also change uh, in response to the um, nature of the threat being addressed. And there's talk about you know, moving a striker brigade, for instance, into Romania and making it a permanent presence. And so with you know, the striker you know, armored vehicles, there's going to come you know, need for uh, support, maintenance, training, other forms of logistics. Paul Murphy, Senior Data Analyst at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe a hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, You know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, And we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, So my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that 
the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.